Technology dominates our world and every aspect of our lives. From birth to grave, we're surrounded throughout our existence by technologies intended to make our lives easier, less complicated, and to free us from the monotony of work. On the other hand, our technical world seems ever more complex, difficult to manage, and more people feel they're nothing more than slaves to the machine. In the face of our modern world, do we really understand the historical, cultural and social impacts of the tools around us? In his book Technology Matters, Professor David Nye, from Warwick's School of Comparative American Studies, has been grappling with these questions. Let's welcome David. Hello. Hello. Why does technology actually matter? Well, I chose that title partly. It's a, it, matter can be a verb, as you are taking it there, but can also be matters of technology. Technology matters. And I want readers to think of it uh, both ways. But to take your idea, how does technology matter? Why does it matter? It's because it's really part of what human beings are. Rather than think of it as something really recent that just emerged in the last 100 years or 200 years, which many people tend to do, I take the position that you have to go back literally thousands and thousands of years and understand that we probably wouldn't have emerged as a, a sort of cultural animal without technologies, that you need machines uh, only toward the end, but you need tools very early on. And that's what makes human beings, in a sense, in cultures, possible. And if you look at it that way, then we're in an ongoing kind of dialogue with these objects, rather than somehow uh, only recently uh, oppressed by them or, or liberated by them, depending on how you look at it. We're surrounded by technology. Is that technology shaped by us, or is it shaping us? Well, of course, it's both. And the interesting thing is that our ancestors made certain choices. And when we come into the world, we just accept the world that we're in. So when children today grow up, they assume that there are computers. They assume there are satellites. These things are almost natural to them. And they don't feel that it's a cultural choice that, that was made uh, to have these things. So in that sense, they feel that maybe they're surrounded and maybe controlled by a large number of objects take the longer historical view, you say, well, each one of these things was decided upon. Somebody wanted them, uh, somebody decided to pay for them, and uh, the problem for us as historians is to step back enough to see what choices were made, and what choices were not made, too. When, when choosing technology, there's a debate that says the market dictates what technologies we should choose. Is that necessarily true, or are we making decisions based on other criteria? Well, if you take the market to mean you know, the consumer is mm -hmm. choosing... There is some truth to that. The consumers decide that they like one thing over another. But, of course, we all know of examples where it's more complex than that, where the government lays down some policies or, uh, because of safety issues, prohibits something. Uh, there, there are government ways of, of interfering in that market or shaping the market. But there's also the choices made by the large corporations who have uh, research and development labs, and they say, what do we think we can make uh, which will make money? Uh, if, if, the, if you're thinking in terms of the market. But more recently, in the last uh, generation or so, we've become increasingly aware of the, the rather substantial implications these things have. For example, let us suppose, and this is not totally hypothetical, let us suppose that uh, soon we have ways of keeping people alive much longer. And I don't mean just you know hooked up to some machine in a hospital, but I mean that they might live to, say, be 150 years mm -hmm. old. They're or 200 years old, there are people who seriously think this is going to be a possibility. That's a technological intervention which would have huge uh, social implications. So one of the things I try to take up in the book is can we just allow the, the market to decide and what will be the effects? Mm -hmm. If you allow that to happen, for example, when would people retire? 
would it still be a 65 and then they have 100 years of retirement? That doesn't seem likely. Uh, there'd be all sorts of questions that would come up that uh, are forced on us by the uh, decision to allow certain technologies to go forward. So it's very complex. On the one hand, yes, we, we are shaped by the technologies that were adopted by others, maybe without our ever being consulted because it happened 200 years ago or 50 years ago. But ultimately, it was human choices. Uh, cultural systems are created by the people who uh, are living in the past, and they give them to us, and we often tend to accept them without thinking maybe that, well, there could be another way. We, we don't have to do it this way. I mean, you raise an interesting question in the book about the inevitability of, of technology, and um, I think you, you pick up on um, some commentators around the Internet who have often declared that the Internet is this great natural force for change, for, for opening up cultural barriers. Um, and you're quite sort of distinct, and you're quite strong in your book of saying, actually, no, that's not the case. Technology is not a natural thing. It's not a driver. It's, it's the social and cultural aspects that, it, that technology assists or technology enables that's, that's the important element. Yeah, and, and nations can shape them. The interesting thing right now will be to watch, and I'm not in favor of this, but it happens to be the Chinese government's trying very hard to keep uh, Internet usage from getting access to certain sites as that their own citizens are being kept from getting certain things. And that would be an example of where there's a government that doesn't wish to see the Internet uh, used in just any way. Uh, and in that case, i say, well, I'm a, I'm a free market person when it comes to that. I would like to see free speech and the free dissemination of ideas in, in Chinese culture. But it's a reminder that, well, culture, that, that you know there are ways in which media networks or computer networks are shaped. They're not uh, entirely neutral. No. Do you think, I mean, there, there's an interesting question there that says, is our approach to um, technology, is there a global approach to technology? Is there a, a, a way that humanity as such approaches technology? Or um, do we, perhaps in the West, have a rather particular, almost messianic uh, attitude around technology? We see science and technology as being the great uh, problem solver. It's kind of thinking about George Bush and his attitude towards the Kyoto Agreement and saying, actually, technology will come in and it will solve all our ecological yeah. problems. Um, mm. Is there a particular mindset that we have in the West that, that encourages that? Well, there is uh, a view amongst a lot of people in the West. George Bush would be an example of uh, what you might call the technological fix. That is, if we have a problem that's caused by technology, let's say it's uh, too much pollution, that will just build a better uh, car, for example, that will not pollute as much, and so we can go on living exactly as before, but we will have fixed the uh, the technological problem with a technological uh, solution. Uh, I think the West in the last, uh, say, 100 years or so has especially been prone to embrace this idea, but uh, it, I wouldn't want to say it's a universal human mm. tendency to do so, nor is it necessarily inevitable that we do so. But one of the reasons I wrote the book, actually, was that very often people think technologies are inevitable. And once you think they're inevitable, of course, it's fate, and you can't do anything mm -hmm. about it. You just lean back and enjoy it or accept it uh, regretfully, saying, well, that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's the wrong attitude to take. I think you raised the example in the book of the, um, the wheel as something that we take as being a, um, as a fairly fundamental um, tool in our, in our technological armory, and yet there are examples in history where people have rejected the wheel. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, actually. There was a, a wonderful book written about the way that the culture of North Africa, or the cultures, there was more than one, rejected the wheel in favor of the camel. So they gave up wheel transportation 
that doesn't mean they didn't have a, maybe a potting wheel or something, but they gave up the wheel as uh, the basis for hauling things around because it was actually more efficient and cheaper. Uh, you didn't need to maintain roads as well if you used camels. Uh, another good example would be the Japanese who had briefly adopted the gun and then gave it up and for a couple of hundred years went back to fighting with swords. Uh, that was possible because they weren't open to the rest of the world. That is, they didn't have to fight wars with other people that did have guns. So you could say, well, once you get those guns, it's hard to avoid having neighbors who will force themselves upon you, as the Americans finally did in the case of the Japanese. But generally speaking, people can choose uh, the extent to which they want a technology or not. And uh, we tend to forget that, or we tend, let's put it another way, it's not made the focus of politics maybe as much as it might be. One of the criticisms of technology is that we end up in a situation where everything becomes the same. Do you think that's the case? Well, you can make a, an argument for just the opposite. And actually, I have a chapter, maybe I should say at this point, the yeah. book is organized as chapters which offer up a question and offer then more than one answer to the question, although I make clear where I come out on it, but still <laughs> I want the reader to realize there's more than one side. Otherwise, it would be rather contradictory saying, there are choices, but I'm going to make your choice for you. <laughs> so that wouldn't be the right way to go. But uh, I think you can argue that, yes, it's seen in maybe 1940 or 1950 or 60 even that technologies were making us more homogeneous, the culture was becoming more and more the same everywhere. But more recently, as you look back, you could say, well, actually, we could see very good examples of this not happening. Take, for example... Uh, there was a town called Levittown, built in New York, just outside New York City, which had, I think it was 17,000 homes, which were mostly the same. Maybe there were two or three variants, but it was basically the same house built over and over again. If you go to visit Levittown today, it's hard to see that they're similar, because so many additions, you know, dormers or porches or swimming pools or garages or the landscaping, the painting, the, the siding, everything gets changed. So after a while, the houses don't look the same. They've been adapted by the people living in them to become very individualized. Uh, it turns out they've held their value very well, and uh, still a desirable community to live in after all these years, partly because it's become so differentiated. And you might say, well, that's just one example, but another one would be the automobile. When Henry Ford started out, he made the same identical car, a Model T, 15 million Model Ts, not that different from one another. Uh, they changed a tiny bit from one year to the next, but there was not a model change. There wasn't an emphasis on difference. Look what's happened today. Cars, car corp companies are forced to give many different colors to the consumers, not just the outside, but also the different types of upholstery. And if you're not satisfied with the differences you can get, initially people go out and spend a lot of money on accessories to change their car so that they become quite individual. The cars of today are much different from one another than the cars, let's say, of 1925. So it seems that the long term is that technologies don't necessarily force us to be more e the same. You could argue they're making us different. Now, there's a counter-argument, which I also bring up. The counter-argument is, yeah, but we're all driving cars. So what if they're different? Uh, and that that's a, also one that I try to take uh, into account, but we can't do the whole book on, on a tape. So. <laughs> It's interesting that, is technology inherently unpredictable? Can we actually sort of look at a situation and say, well, you know, that's how that technology is going to work, that, you know, we've created this thing to meet this need and it's going to be successful? Or is there a kind of inherent unpredictability that derives from just a basic, you know, human 
social need and, and social yeah, well, makeup. It does seem that the consumers don't necessarily behave the way the inventors or the corporate labs think they will, so that often something is invented with one purpose in mind. Thomas Edison invented the phonograph thinking it would be used for dictating letters and preserving voices for posterity and things like that. Uh, and he didn't really see that music was going to be the main use for it uh, for quite a while. I mean, it was actually more than 10 years, during which time other people stole a march on him. They started to see where this thing might be going. But it wasn't obvious, uh, although to us in retrospect, it seems, well, clearly this was a way for people to play popular songs over and over again because they liked them. Uh, Edison didn't particularly want that. In fact, he resisted jazz. Uh, he didn't particularly like jazz music, so he didn't want to have that on his records. <laughs> <laughs> Big mistake, <laughs> but you know he was trying to uh, shape the market. The market wasn't going to have anything of it from mm -hmm. him. So yeah, there, there are many many examples. There are also many studies of prediction, and it turns out that even though people may be scientists or so-called experts or futurologists, they only get it right about half the time. And some of the predictions are we still don't know if they're right or not. But the ones we can look at and test, they're about half right, about half wrong. It doesn't seem to matter what methods are used, whether it's Induction or sort of study based on, you know, extending graphs outward into the future of you know the development of something, so that the more you look at it, you and there are lots and lots of examples in the book. It's striking how often people get it wrong, especially with the the sort of the blue sky developments. Now, obviously, if somebody says there will be a new model of the uh, Ford motor car next year, that's probably a safe prediction. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really what we're talking about. We obviously sort of look at technology in terms of solving need and solving problems, but obviously that comes with a side effect, um, some impact on the environment, um, some impact on our lives. Um, do you think, I mean, where's the balance in those things, do you think? Well, that's uh, the big question, isn't it? I mean, uh, we don't want to destroy the, uh, the environment in order to have more gadgets, mm. uh, but we would like to have gadgets that would perhaps improve the environment and things like that. So for just for example, one of the things people are working on now is solar energy because if you could produce inexpensive but efficient solar cells, that would solve a lot of the whole global warming problem. You could have them on the roof of your house and supply your own electricity and you wouldn't be causing the government to run out and build more coal-fired plants as they're doing in China. But is this concern about the impact of technology, is this a modern phenomenon, or is this something that's concerned people about the tools that they use oh, throughout history? Okay, No, it goes well back into the uh, Middle Ages, actually. Even Britain, you might think the energy problems are recent, but actually Britain was already importing uh, coal or, or wood or other things from other places uh, way back in the 14th century. Mm. And they were not very well observed, but there were bans on burning uh, coal in the city of London pretty early on, I mean, before the time that we associate with the Industrial Revolution. Most of Britain was covered with trees uh, at one time, but of course that's long gone. Uh, and these tendencies to strip the landscape of resources uh, unfortunately haven't uh, dissipated. We all know the, la the problems with mm -hmm. the rainforest in Brazil at the moment. So somehow we've got to find a balance. I've got, a, again, a chapter in the book about this whole problem, about mm -hmm. sustainability versus, uh, you know, the desire for more things, you might say. And it, 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 that's one of the toughest questions we face, I think. That's why technology matters, for, for one thing, the, this particular issue alone. Another 
sort of hot topic at the moment, obviously, is the issue around security. Technology can be our saviour in terms of providing us with secure um, homes. It can, in terms of defence, and yet the very technology that we use to secure ourselves can often be turned around and actually escalate the danger that we, the dangers that we are in. The question of um, of danger or of safety is a really complex one, and I, I try to divide it up into the, you might say the civilian and the military aspects because. In terms of civilian life, just building bridges and constructing houses and things like that, you could say, yes, technology has certainly gotten better. We know how to build a house, so it's not likely to blow down or burn down or you know, have, have serious problems in, in mm-hmm. bad weather. Uh, but the problem in the modern world has been more and more that there are so many different devices and systems all interacting in ways that sometimes we cannot foresee. So even though the individual machine or the individual device might work just fine, when you put it into a larger system, there can be something that doesn't quite click right. There can be a disconnect of some sort. Uh, and you can see this when people build such things as uh, railway trains or satellites or uh, large complex systems, or you might not think of it as a machine, but the whole electrical grid, which sometimes mm-hmm. breaks down, and typically it seems to be a very small thing. A small error of some kind that triggers a cascade of uh, ever bigger problems and leading to some sort of a disaster. So there's this paradox that the technologies we use individually are probably safer and safer, but when things go wrong, uh, the bigger the technology, the more destructive the mm. result. Uh, if, if that seems very abstract, just think of it. Well, if a train going uh, 300 kilometers an hour has a major failure, it's going to kill a lot of people, whereas if a wagon going at three or four miles an hour, a simple technology, if the axle breaks, well, it might not kill anybody. But if that happens on the TGV going uh, through France somewhere, then you could have very serious repercussion. Mm. So, or the same would be true of airplanes or any, anything which is large and complex. If there's a failure, it tends to have a very rapid and almost unforeseeable result. In one of the last questions that you pose in the book, you sort of state does technology expand our horizons or does it, um, I, I love this phrase, encapsulate us in artifice? Yes, that's a, a really fundamental question that philosophers like to debate that particular. Mm-hmm. And Heidegger was very concerned about this question, felt that we were losing contact with the natural world and having, having in a sense, a screen more and more uh, was between us and the original perceptions of the world. Uh, and many philosophers have taken up the, these concerns. They're worried about that once we cease to have this direct kind of connection to the natural world, we more and more will regard it just as raw material. Hmm. The term uh, in English, when they translate Heidegger, is standing reserve, as if all of nature is just standing there as like a big warehouse for us to come and take things out of it, rather than feeling a part of it. Uh, one of the things that's a problem for us is we may not feel the connection to the natural world that really is there. That is, that when we turn on the lights, we don't realize that, well, we had to either burn some coal or some oil or uh, nuclear plant, or maybe there was a, uh, a dam in the mountains, but somewhere there was some connection to nature to make that electricity. But most people don't perceive their world as one which is shaped and modified all the time by these machines and by these systems. And therefore, they take it, in a sense, to be all right to be completely separate from nature. They don't realize that in the end we can't be separate. That we have to understand the technologies as something mediating 
between our world and, and the natural mm -hmm. world and that we, we if we don't control them properly if we don't understand what we're doing with them we can do very serious harm mm -hmm. not just to the world but to ourselves even just looking at the Grand Canyon which you might say well that's a natural place but it turns out human beings have um, polluted the air enough so actually uh, the Grand Canyon is slightly more impressionistic looking today <laughs> <laughs> depending on how the wind's blowing Los Angeles smog can actually have an effect on your perception of Grand Canyon mm. uh, the, Gra the Grand Canyon example is really interesting actually where you, you write about the um, the television picture of the Grand Canyon as opposed to the Grand Canyon itself and that um, the small boy who's actually more interested in the te picture on the television than the actual thing that's well, well, right well, at, at least according to the ad, we were, it was an advertisement <laughs> from Sony. So, but the kid would run over there and look at the TV. But I have actually seen such things. Uh, I've been in uh, sites where people seem to take an interest in the image of the site almost as much as the place itself. Right outside Grand Canyon, in fact, they've got a uh, gigantic IMAX theater, which has capacity crowds. There was like, people have just seen the actual Grand Canyon, but they'll stop at this and pay money to go in and see a, a large video, well, not a video, it's an IMAX image, mm. uh, and watch that. And part of me thinks that this is just awful. Another part of me says, well, I suppose, since most families don't have the money to go flying over Grand Canyon, they can have the experience of flying in an airplane vicariously, in a sense. Mm. They add to what they've already seen through this uh, experience of the theater. And there's such things also I should emphasize at Niagara Falls and some other places, mm -hmm. so it's not a one-off. <laughs> They've discovered that people who have just been to the very famous site will pay more money to actually go in and see the video image of it. Having gone through the, the various questions that you pose, what, what are the challenges that you're setting at the end of the book? Well, at the end of the book, it really, it's called a conclusion, but it, it really is about technology and the future. Because if technology has mattered in the past, it's going to matter even more. Uh, you can't really imagine a society today that was not technological in some way uh, you could maybe imagine as not being literate or not you know being pre you know pre-literate or something but not pre-technological that's just not an option uh, hasn't been for thousands of years and uh, so at the end I'm really trying to get people to realize that they have a lot of choices to make technological choices uh, they can't always make them as individuals often we're going to have to do it through our politicians mm and to think about the alternative futures that present themselves because the mastery that we have is growing all the time and there are alternative ways that we can can go ahead and of course some of these we're all familiar with we've seen films which imagine the machines taking over or human beings merging with robots and becoming sort of uh, uh, supermen or superwomen uh, those are perhaps possibilities I don't at the end try to suggest there's any one definite way that we're going to go with the, the, the technologies of the future, but to suggest to people that they shouldn't allow anything to seem inevitable. There really is a matter of choice. Professor Mike, thank you very much. If you'd like to comment on this podcast, then you can do so by visiting the University of Warwick website at www.warwick.ac.uk.